0: What do you most value in a leader? What do you most value in a leader? For many of us, it's competence. The skill or ability to get the job done. And not just complete a task, but to get it done exactly the way you want it done. Efficient is practically their middle name. Always punctual. Never forgetful always three steps ahead of everyone else. At the end of the day, their mental and physical aptitude provides a sense of confidence for you, and really, everyone around them. Their poised presence just breeds confidence in others. Because you know that when they are at the helm, when they are at the driving wheel, when they are in charge, things will certainly get taken care of. And for others among us, it's charisma. It's that charming personality. that just puts us in a good mood. Uh, being around them is like enjoying your favorite candy bar or ice cream or Andy's frozen custard. They brighten your day. They lower your stress level. They have the tendency to exude the presence of them as a life of the party. Every time they enter the room, this is that likable personality trait that just can keep a crowd interested. They're never boring. They're always funny, smooth with their words, quick on their feet. They're just an all-around approachable people person. Competence. Charisma. Where do these fit in your priority list for a leader? Well, this week, our country will see the transfer of power in the presidency. It's no surprise to anyone in here that our country is sharply divided and deeply fragmented on a whole host of pressing issues surrounding this election. That's not to say that our country has always been united on every issue there is to discuss. I mean, that's history would tell us. That's far from the truth. But the recent events on Capitol Hill and the concerns folks have about the upcoming inauguration and really the future of our company our country are multifaceted the layers of complexity surrounding the timing and length of this pandemic combined with the influence of the media on the U.S. population for good and for bad only has increased the waves of fears and confusion for people on both sides of the political spectrum. If there is anything that is rising to the surface of people's minds right now, it's the important topic of leadership. Indeed, who leads our country matters to some people just as much and possibly even more than who their pastor is or what kind of parent they want to be to their children, or the type of spouse they desire to become, or the type of boss they aspire to work for. And with each passing week, it seems that what people value in our country, in a leader, is clearly shown by the passion they express through their words and their actions. Some of those words and actions honor God. And some of those words and actions bring disrepute to his name. Whether it's transitions in government, transitions in churches, transitions in sports teams, somewhere along the way, when it all comes full circle, we have to consider what we most value in a leader. Brothers and sisters, as your pastor, I do want to say something very clear to us today in light of this week's upcoming events in our country. As Christians, we have to realize that presidential elections, though important, are not the Mount Everest of decisions we will face in this life. In fact, presidents in the U.S. will take office anywhere from four to eight years and then guess what? Someone will replace them. And not only that, when we look in the Bible, the 66 God-breathed scriptures, we see that the God we've sung about, the God we have prayed to, cares a whole lot more about what's going on in our world more than simply what's going on in one country for one to two terms starting in January 2021. You see, every day our lives are influenced by many other people in rather profound ways more than men and women who are serving in our country's government. We have influencers and leaders that we come into contact with on a week-to-week and a day-by-day basis that have far greater impacts on us than who is residing in the White House. Think with me for a moment. A parent raising a child or, as the Williams might say, a whole houseful of children. Parents are on the front lines. They're not off on some ivory tower somewhere. They're right there in the thick of it all the time with these little ones in thousands of significant moments. 168 hours a week, up to 18 years of their life. And some of you haven't got a hint from your parents, sometimes more than 18 years of your life. Parents have a profound impact on their children, oftentimes more than anyone else that you and I can fully comprehend. The types of families we raise today will shape what societies look like In decades to come. Or consider a pastor overseeing a flock of believers and feeding the Word of God to them each Lord's Day. The man that the church decides to call will be shaping their whole understanding of God and what the gospel is. The pastors or elders that a church recognizes may very well affect the spiritual climate of an entire community shaping what you and I's view is of what it means to follow Jesus. Or think of the office manager at work leading their staff for 40 plus hours a week, keeping their employees on task to do what the CEO requires of them as they fulfill his or her vision for the future of the company. Things like moral ethics and what is said and done behind closed doors all of a sudden matters. It matters because God sees what is done in secret. That means the boss that you decide to work for and the colleagues you decide to work with all of a sudden matters. Because the people you surround yourself with the most will shape how you view right and wrong. Or think of the basketball coach or the softball coach or any coach for that matter leading their players in weekly practices and late night games for three to four months straight. They will shape how our children and our grandchildren view competition and teamwork with their peers. Beloved coaches of all people can even shape a young person's identity and self-worth for a lifetime. And then there's the school teacher or the college professor, imparting book knowledge and life skills to scores of students every year, shaping the masses of the human population for generations to come. Friends, when we look in Scripture we see that God prioritizes qualities in leaders and really in anyone who has an influence on others things more than just competence and charisma. Competence is important and charisma has its place. But when we look in the scriptures and when we look at the person of Christ, we see that the scriptures tell us there are actually qualities that we should want that are even more important than those. Proverbs 20, verses 6 and 7 says this, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find the righteous who walks in his integrity, Blessed are his children after him. Did you hear that? Steadfastness, faithfulness, integrity. This is what causes our children to be blessed if they follow men and women of integrity. The qualities or virtues that I just listed are really the fruits of godly character. One professor, giving a lecture to his students at Boston College, once exhorted his class on this very thing. He said this, if to learn anything, you must give it away. How do you go about it? The first way you give to others what you learn is by allowing it to shape you. I've come to think that there is one single virtue. It's integrity. By integrity, I don't simply mean honesty. I mean the word literally. It's the quality of being an integer. An entity. It's what happens at your funeral when your spouse talks with your pastor who then talks with your business partner, who speaks with your next-door neighbor, who talks with your children, who speaks with your doctor, and they all know that they knew the same person. You weren't a series of masks worn for different relationships. You were complete. So, How does a leader, serving in a place of authority, or really any one of us who have any measure of influence on other people, live a life of integrity? If you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 287. Psalm 101 page 287 in the pew bibles or chair bibles provided this morning we continue in our sermon series as we're walking through five psalms before we enter a new sermon series for the rest of the winter and spring and this morning we're going to be looking at another psalm written by david you can see that in the heading of the psalm right there in psalm 101 it says a psalm of david you might say well who's david well that's that's king david uh, from the old testament We learned a little bit about David in more detail two weeks ago we looked at Psalm 27. So if you want to learn more about David and his background, just go pick up that sermon off the church podcast, and that might be of help to you. Uh, This psalm has been coined by some as a king's resolve, or the heart of a godly king. Interesting, though, we don't really have a specific time reference to when this psalm was written. But for two reasons, I personally want to give you my opinion that I think it's probably written earlier in David's reign as king. Let me give you two reasons. First, it's a psalm of personal commitments or resolutions. Uh, if you look down, just if you haven't read it this week, you'll notice quickly there's about 10 approximately I will statements you can go ahead and circle, or you can get on Instagram. I gave Julia O'Brien a copy of what I call my, my brain dump meditative part, where I just circle and go crazy with how I'm going to dissect the passage. And I will is circled at least 10 times, both in the positive and in the negative. And I think this would fit very well with a young man or an older man taking the throne in Israel's kingdom, much like we might see this week with an inaugural address by a new president. Uh, some commentators think that this is somewhat like an inaugural address where a new king from David on at their coronation ceremony would present to the people a resolve to honor God as king. And secondly, I uh, just just a little little side note, when you learn about David's life in 2nd Samuel chapters 11 and 12, David commits some heinous acts of sin, and so it appears from the resolve and the types of things he mentions here, it's probably way before his tragic downfall. But again, at the end of the day, we're not entirely sure when it was exactly written. Just a side note, though, to give you a little more familiarity with the Psalter, uh, this this psalm is found in book four of the Psalter, which stretches from Psalm 90, To Psalm 106. Now, in case you're not aware, there's 150 psalms in our Bibles, and they're broken up over five books or collections of psalms. So, book one is Psalm 1 to 41. Book two is Psalms 42 to 72. Book three is Psalm 73 to 89. Book four is Psalms 90 to 106. And then book five is Psalms 107 to 150. And within Book 4, other than Psalm 103, which is two psalms ahead of this, uh, this psalm, Psalm 101, is the only one written by David in this particular section in the Psalter. If you want to learn more about David's psalms, most of them were written in the first 70 psalms of the Psalter. And then they're kind of sprinkled throughout the rest. Uh, The rest of the psalms in Book 4 speaks much more about God himself. And how the nation of Israel would have extolled God's greatness among their people. Psalm 101, as you see here, is a short psalm having only eight verses. But within it, if you read carefully, slow down and listen, what you will see, what I will see, is a man that is resolved to live a life of integrity. Please follow with me as I read Psalm 101. This is the word of God. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. If you're taking notes, here are my three main points from my outline. Very, very simple. Point number one, David's resolve to worship God through song. David's resolve to worship God through song. Point number two, David's resolved to rely upon God through prayer. David's resolved to rely upon God through prayer. And point number three, David's resolved to honor God through a life of integrity. David's resolved to honor God through a life of integrity. And my prayer is that as a result of this sermon, everyone in this room will have a better understanding that a life of integrity is a life of pursuing Christ-likeness. Point number one, David's resolve to worship God through song. He says right there in verse one, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. You see, before David begins to lay out his quote-unquote vision and personal ambitions as king of Israel, before he lays out for his resolutions or personal commitments of how he will worship God in his life, he first begins by singing. Singing. Singing is the worshipful response to God's revelation of himself. Singing is the worshipful response to God's revelation of himself. And guess what? Singing is also a command in scripture to obey. For God's people to address one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Ephesians 5 verse 19. Beloved, that means this, if you come to church thinking that singing is only for the music team or simply for those who are more emotional in their expressions, you, my friend, are sadly mistaken. God takes pleasure in hearing his children sing his praises. And whether you know this or not, singing together. That's why we don't have a lofty choir, and we sit back and take in the best talent in the house. When we sing together as one voice in one body to the one true God, this is one of the essentials of a biblical congregational worship. If you've ever wondered, why do we sing at church? Why can't we just kind of skip to the sermon You know, kind of mosey on in and grab my coffee and head on out. Why at CCBC do we sing so much? Well, on any given Sunday, we do sing about six to seven songs in one worship gathering. You tag on the Sunday night, we might sing up to 10 or 11 songs in one day. Well, there is an intentional purpose behind that. God receives honor. He receives glory through the lips of his people who have tasted and seen that he is good. And singing, beloved, is one of the ways we build one another up in the Lord. And we remind one another through song of the truths we read about in Scripture. So, For those of us who are maybe shy or timid to sing in public, or maybe you've thought of singing as something less important than prayer or Bible reading, I'd encourage you to use this season while we're singing in mask to learn how to sing, to move your lips, have a little ugly face with joy in your heart to Jesus. Because guess what? Nobody can see it. But beloved, the day's coming, we're gonna take this thing off and we're gonna be released to sing with no mask. So go ahead and practice now because the day's coming. And brothers and sisters, my hope is that all of us would begin to see that singing is really our heart's response to God's truth and grace in our life. My prayer is that five years from now, When people visit CCBC and then they go home and people ask, hey, how was it at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? I hope they say something like this. Well, they're a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, singing church. That's what I hope CCBC will be known for. And I pray it would be true of your own life. And notice what David sings about. He begins by singing about steadfast love. Uh, this is that familiar term, if you know anything of Hebrew, of describing the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, this is that Hebrew word, kessed, which means faithful love, committed love, uh, embodies all of what loyalty really is. Uh, some of your translations might even say loving kindness or mercy. It's the image used in Scripture that we can most relate to of the covenantal bond between a committed husband to love and cherish his wife all of her days. It's the picture of a faithful wife committed to following the leadership of her husband and do him good all his days. All throughout the Old Testament, the steadfast love of the Lord is, is repeated frequently, is one of the things that they are most excited about. For example, David penned elsewhere in the psalm, Psalm 63, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 143, verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. I look back in Psalm 100 for a second, flip back one page, Very short psalm, five verses. Would you notice Psalm 100, verse 5. What does the Israel choir sing about as they lead in worship? Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. So when you and I hear that word, kesed in the scriptures, or steadfast love, it's always crucial for us that we have a biblical understanding of what true love actually is and not just some kind of biased understanding that makes us feel good. It's important to know that David is not talking about love here in some self-centered or lust-driven way, somehow confusing romantic infatuation or lust with true covenantal love like many young people do when they meet someone they're attracted to and it makes them feel good and lightheaded with butterflies and they call it love at first sight. I pop that balloon every time I hear it. That ain't love at first sight. You don't know nothing about them. Love is seeing someone's dirt and sin and staying committed to love them. That's love. Beloved, steadfast love is far greater the average definition we might get at Hallmark. He's not talking about love here either in a sentimental way, like a modern country song might describe a man's affection for his old dog or his pickup truck. No, David is singing to the Lord about the Lord. David says right there in verse 1 of Psalm 101, to you, O Lord, I will make music. In other words, David has something to sing about because God has done something in David. God has defined for David and God has revealed to David his steadfast love. He's revealed himself. He has shown his kindness. He has shown his mercy. He has shown David who his God is and what God has done in his life. I wonder if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ today, when is the last time you sung to God in response to his steadfast love to you? Maybe use this afternoon to think of all the ways that God has been kind and committed to do you good even when you've ignored him and been faithless to him. May those remembrances lead to worship through song. So when David sings about the Lord's steadfast love, he's talking about here again the enduring kindness and mercy of God towards his covenant people. But David doesn't take God's love for granted because he also acknowledges something of God's justice. Much like two sides of the same coin, he shows another characteristic of God. David says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. When David now sings not only about God's love, but now God's justice, he's extolling in the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, which means this, everything God says and everything God does is always right. You never have to second guess what God says or what God does. Everything he commands us is good for us. Everything he warns us about is good for us. God is righteous every day all the time and he shows partiality to no one god he's he's the judge of the whole earth and he cannot be indifferent to our sin and he will hold every single one of us accountable for our life in fact in just a few songs before this you don't have to turn there psalm 98 Verse 9 says this, the Lord will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Listen, if you're someone here today who's sitting here at church and it took a lot of courage to get here because this week or maybe this past year you have been wrongly abused or unjustly and wickedly harmed, and that person hasn't been punished for what they've done, I want to tell you, unless they repent of their sins and trust in Christ for mercy, God will hold them accountable. Every person will stand before God either as adopted and forgiven or condemned eternally. God is going to judge the world. And beloved, his justice is far superior than any justice system we might have in this life. It's also important to note that God's justice is directly connected to his judgments or his laws. And David, guess what? (laughs) He didn't see God's word as a hindrance to his joy. He didn't see God's word as kind of a a bore factor. I've got to obey God because he just told me to do it. No, he saw that God's character and his word were connected. That God's word, his law, was both the joy of his heart and a guide to all truth, at least moral and spiritual truth. Psalm 19, you might be familiar. David says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, The latter section of Deuteronomy 17, it clearly states that God's law was to be before every king of Israel's eyes. Like when the driving instructor says, keep your eyes on the road, don't don't answer your phone, don't look to the left or the right, keep God's word before your eyes. And he says in Deuteronomy that the king should have the law before his eyes so that it would keep his heart humble. You see, that's one of the powerful things about God's word that any book you get cannot do. I can recommend scores of books to you that will help you in your Christian life, but there's only one book that can transform your Christian life, and that's the living and abiding word of God. It keeps us humble. It brings us back to our creatureliness and our utter dependence on God. And God's law would instruct the king and how to fear the Lord all his days that means this the more a king like David would have God's law before his gaze morning to evening every time he gave a judgment every time he brought about an execution every time he brought in a new army to fight with him David's heart his character was being shaped with a heart of integrity So, whether it's singing from his lips or making music from his hands on the harp, David responded to God's steadfast love and his justice with the praise that is due his name. But David didn't merely sing about these things. These two attributes are found beautifully in beautiful perfection in God himself. But David knew as a king who represented God's kingdom, he was called to exemplify these same attributes, steadfast love and justice. He was to be a model of that before the people that he would rule over. Which leads to point number two, David's resolve to rely upon God through prayer. David's resolve to rely upon God Through prayer. Look at the first half of verse 2 with me. After singing about God and these attributes that he were to embody, he says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? It's interesting in verse 2, it's the only time God, or David rather, speaks and asks and pleads to God. Right sandwiched in between singing about God's attributes and what David's called to do, he begins to show us how desperate he was for God's help. David here is also embodying as for us, that his relationship with God was not some kind of lifeless religious exercise or just some kind of going through the motions to appear like he loved God from the depths of his being. David wanted to know what living for God's glory should look like. He wanted to, as you notice here, give attention to, uh, consider carefully, or as the ESV translates, ponders the way or the life that is blameless. David here begins to examine his own life, his heart, his ambitions, his thought life, his relationships, and the responsibilities he had from God as king. And the more David considered and stared at what God had called him to, David took a big gulp and realized a lot was at stake. The weight of what God had placed on David's life of this calling as king would sit heavily upon him. Have you ever gotten to a first day on a new job? Your boss hands you the handbook and the schedule and what he expects or she expects of you in the next five days? Or maybe you're a student entering your first semester of college, or for some of us, if you can remember that far back, The professor hands out the class syllabus. Brownie, did it happen this week? Where the kids start sweating, stomachs get a little nauseous, going, I'm going to be dropping this class. Brownie's a little over the top. You ever been a new parent for the first time? It's real exciting in the hospital. Nurses are helping. Doctors are high-fiving. You got the clothes, you got the baby shower gifts, you're riding in the car 20 miles below the speed limit and you get to your house, you're exhausted and then it comes to yourself and realize what am I going to do now? They're just crying and they just lay there. What do I do? That's what David does when he begins to carefully consider the call of God on his life. And more specifically, what was going on inside David's heart as he considers the type of pure and holy life that God had called him to. A life totally committed to God's purposes. In fact, that word here, blameless, means complete or wholeness. It's a life entirely devoted to God's steadfast love and justice. Uh, David knew that Both he and all of God's people. From the most powerful king to the lowliest servant were to pursue a life of holiness in the entirety of their lives. Lives marked by love and mercy. Righteousness and justice. Especially for those in leadership. Parents, Do you feel the weight of responsibility of raising your children in a God-honoring home? Coaches, business owners, teachers, or anyone in positions of authority and government, do you feel the weight of your stewardship from God to lead a life before your people that honors the Lord. Fellow Christian, do you feel the weight of living for King Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year of loving your God from your heart and turning away from your sin? If you feel the weight like you're standing before a tsunami, David does too and so should we. Look at what he says again in verse 2, oh, when will you come to me? Who on earth is David calling out to? It's not Jonathan. It sure is not Saul. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the one he just sang to, the Lord. David stares at the blameless life, the life totally committed and submitted to the will of God, both as a man and as a king. And he does this, and he feels the weight of his own inadequacies, the weight of his own sin, the weight of his own inconsistencies. He feels like a planet is on his back. So what does David do? He cries out in desperation for God to come to me draw near to me, be with me. Brothers and sisters, be careful of overestimating your own strength and underestimating God's strength. Be careful of overestimating your own strength and underestimating God's. Listen, that's why he started off. He is the God of steadfast love, He is the God who bears with our infirmities, who carries us like a father carries a child through the wilderness. He knows our faith is fickle. He knows we get afraid and want to bolt. He knows that we are tempted to compromise and pervert what God says is true. So, brothers and sisters, let the weight of your utter weakness be the secret to your abiding strength. Let the weight of your utter weakness be the secret of your abiding strength. Listen, God's power is always made perfect in where? Weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. I mean, isn't this the echo throughout the New Testament? It's like you hit play, flip the book, hit play, flip the book. We hear the same thing. Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 2 Peter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence or John 15 verse 5 Jesus said I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing if you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian yet do you feel the weight of your own sin before God to know that God sees everything you're doing there's nowhere you can hide there's no text message there's no email uh, there's no idle word that he has never seen or heard he has seen it all does that bring any sense of trepidation to your soul well it should if you feel guilt and shame it could be a blessing from God to wake you up. You see, sin separates us from God. And guilt and shame are those God-ordained means after the fall to warn us of the dangers of hell. That sin, though it tastes very good at first, it goes down and it is very bitter. It feels good in the moment and it leaves scars and pain many years later. But beloved, you might feel the weight of a canyon between you and God. And there is good news for you this morning. God has bridged that canyon. He has not waited for you to climb up the mountain to him. He has not waited for you to take the planet off your back. He says, come to me and I will take it off for you. You see, the good news is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect, blameless life. Jesus, truly God, yet truly man, was always filled with the Holy Spirit, living in this fallen world, and yet fully and totally committed to his heavenly Father. Jesus never hit a timeout on the Christian life. Jesus never hit pause on depending on his heavenly Father. And Jesus' obedience to his Father led him to a cross. It led him to Calvary. And the weight and the canyon that stands between us and a holy God was bridged on that day. Christ absorbed God's deepest wrath. He faced God's justice so that justice could be satisfied. At the cross, the pictures of God's steadfast love for sinners and God's hatred and justice toward sinners was put on Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Isn't that good news? Though our sins separate us, from God, God has brought us to himself. And he's done that through Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he now promises, if you come to him by faith, he gives you his perfect record of righteousness. That perfect record of integrity. That perfect record of blamelessness. Because the Bible says that everyone that belongs to Jesus, he will be presented blameless on the last day. Jesus is the doorway to know your God. Repent of your sins and trust in him today by faith. Well, David's reliance upon God strengthened his own faith and created convictions that he was resolved to live out. By God's grace, which leads to our final point, point number three. David's resolve to honor God through a life of integrity. Let's read the remainder of verse two all the way to verse four. He says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. We can clearly see here David has resolved to live a blameless life. First, by obeying God, listen, in his private life. Did you notice he mentions his heart and his house? David's private life, he's speaking of his heart and his house. As you notice in this psalm, there are approximately 10 I wills, somewhat like vows. Vows you recited on your wedding day. Vows that we recite together, even tonight in our members meeting. Covenant vows towards one another. As someone swearing into office or being commissioned in the military will have some form of oath or vow to keep. And here David's vow, his resolution is to pursue a life of godliness that always begins in the heart. Did you notice there? He says, I will walk with integrity of heart. What is integrity? It's just a good question, right? I mean, how how do do you flesh out integrity? Well, integrity is character that has been tried and tested. It's really the character that imitates the character of Jesus Christ, a life full of love, a life full of truth. You might say, well, how do I know if I have integrity? Here's an illustration. Imagine your heart right now, if we could put it up on a screen or some kind of video display. And your heart was almost like a house filled with tons of doors. Let's say 25 doors. A person who lacks integrity hides things behind the doors. In fact, they say things on the door that are not true what's behind the door. They live a double life. Their life is just a lie. It's a perpetual secret. And they're pretty good at tricking and fooling people. That's not a life of integrity. That's a life of deceitfulness and hypocrisy. But a life of integrity is this. I welcome trusted friends through any door of my life. Ask me anything you want at any time you want. And to ask me those hard and personal questions that I'm not afraid to answer. In other words, you see what you get. There are no secrets. There are no skeletons in the closet that I'm trying to keep away from you. Who I am in private is who I am in public. It's a life of wholeness, completeness. There's no large gaps between who you are in front of people and who you are before God. Isn't that what Jesus said all throughout his ministry about the importance of of the heart? Jesus taught his disciples that out of the abundance of our heart the mouth speaks, Luke 6, 45. He told the Pharisees that they honored him with their lips, but their heart was far from me, Matthew 15:8. When questioned about the scriptures that Brother David read earlier in Mark chapter 12, how did Jesus respond to the greatest commandment? Mark 12:30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. I think it's safe to say that David had a robust understanding of God's omniscience. He knew his God sees everything. But instead of making David afraid of that reality, it freed David to live a life of integrity. You see, that integrity, being faithful to God when others aren't watching, always begins in the secret corridors of our hearts David knew that the integrity of his heart though would be tested all of our hearts and all of our character is tested in the places where it matters the most like all of us David knew all too well that we all tend to be more vulnerable and comfortable around the people who know us the best Notice what David says. I will walk integrity of heart within my house. For David this would have been his palace. This would have been where his family would have resided. This would have been where his associates would have come to him, his kingdom officials, his men of war. They would have seen David at his best and at his worst. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you again. Are you someone who is characteristically different in the public eye than you are in the privacy of your home? Do you find yourself wanting to do what is right only when others are watching? Maybe we should all consider that quotation from that Boston College professor. Professor. If we gathered four to five people around our lives who knew us quite well, would they all describe the same person? Or would they describe someone who wears different masks for different people? May we all be challenged by the words of Jeremiah Burroughs, who once said, You shall find one who walks with God to be the same in private as he is in public. David had examined his own heart in light of God's knowledge of him and he resolved to go to war against his sin. His fear of God and his desire to cling to him caused him to stay away from those who fell away from loving God. Notice what he says here starting in verse 3 again. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. David understands that whatever he opens himself up to is going to be what controls his heart. And notice what David says. I want you to understand the emphatic declaration he's making. He says that he will not set before Anything in his life that is worthless, vile, wicked, vulgar, anything that would spiritually destroy him. Brothers and sisters, I've been a pastor now, vocationally, for about eight years. I've been a Christian for about 18, or no, 20, oh boy, 20 to, I don't know, since I was 13, my math's way off this morning. One of the most silent killers in the church today is pornography, it's watching sexual activities on a screen that God never created us to do. I don't have to read the statistics to you. If you stare at pornography, it will damage your mind, it will destroy your soul, and it will rip apart every relationship in your life. And that goes for single and married people alike. Brothers and sisters, be very careful which you allow before your eyes. Be discerning Use verse 3 as a part of your litmus test of what you watch on Netflix or your your phone at night or when you're with your friends and family. Brothers and sisters, there's a whole world out there that is screaming for your attention to grab you like a lion and eat you up. And if I don't get that bold with you now, I don't know who else will. So today, if you are struggling with some kind of secret sin on any kind of device, get help now. Talk to me. Talk to someone you love, another church member you trust. Do not fight that battle alone. God, it is his will for you to experience freedom and joy and a clean and clear conscience. Jansen, brother, if I can give you a word of advice walking into ministry. A brother told me in my 20s, he was my childhood pastor in my developmental years. He said, Blake, I got one word for you stay close and stay clean. Stay close to Jesus and stay clean of living a secret life. You do that, you'll be all right. I preach that to my heart. I preach that to you, my brother, and I preach that to everyone in here. Do not set anything before your eyes that is worthless. Brothers and sisters, If you continue on in verse 3, it's not just what was set before David's eyes. He, He also hated the work of those who fell away. In other words, it burned David's heart when he saw people who once praised the Lord with their mouths now lived lives that dishonored his name. David's anger grew and boiled over when he saw rank hypocrisy in Israel. Brothers and sisters, it should always break our heart when we see people walk away from Christ. And it should anger us inside when people live unrepentant lives and call them Christians. God's name is on the line. God's church is his bride. We should feel the same pain that Jesus experiences for his people. One verse, if you want one to kind of store away, as we think about this eyes and heart relationship, is Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. David's resolved to live a blameless life, both as God's appointed king and as a man after God's own heart would begin in his private life, in his heart and in his house. Instead of putting himself in the way of temptation, he removed himself from the temptation. He says in verse 4, A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Brothers and sisters, if you have children or grandchildren, do not try to protect your children from all evil in the world, but teach them how to be discerning of what is in the world. You don't want them totally ignorant of what's out there. But you want to teach them how to be men and women of discernment so they take the right path when they're put in it. That's why the book of Proverbs is filled with that same admonition. David's resolve to obey God would naturally flow from his private life into his public life as king. Look at verses 5 to 8 as we look at David's public life. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord." Really, David brings about two things that he's very concerned about. Two things he's resolved to live a life of integrity with. How he handled his responsibilities and how he handled his relationships. His responsibilities and his relationships. First, notice how David handled his responsibilities as king of Israel. Look at verses 5 and 7. You'll notice that David's oversight is God's ruling representative Is clearly seen how he deals with the sinful actions of people under his reign. Verse 5, those who speak with malicious intent and slander with the purpose of creating division among the people. He says he will destroy, he will punish, he will judge the crime in accordance with what God's word had required under the Mosaic law. And whoever had a puffed up heart Uh, showing it through selfish ambition to undermine his kingdom as king of God's people. It says he will not endure. He had a no tolerance mentality when it came to evil. Verse 7, all deceit, testimonies of bearing false witness and perverting the truth would have no place in God's reign. It's important to note for all of us, who serve in any form of leadership, that David here is neither being passive in his leadership, nor is he being oppressive in his leadership. David's acting like a faithful shepherd. He's upholding God's law by carrying out both the punishments within it, but also surrounding himself with people that will help him live this blameless life. You see, David realized and he knew quite well that the people you surround yourself with can either hurt or help your pursuit of a godly life. Brothers and sisters, do you want relationships in your life that are spiritually healthy and honor the Lord? Then build those relationships on truth and love. If you want deep, meaningful friendships in the local church, you have to repent of superficial relationships they have to be built upon truth and love about 6 years ago i was seeking accountability from an older man he was 70 looked about 45 i'm not sure how he did it but it's quite impressive and i remember saying brother allen i need a brother to hold me accountable i'm moving away from georgia i'm coming to dc and i'm in this transitional period and i don't want to slip i don't want to know my sin i know myself And he said, Brother Blake, I will meet with you as much as you want. I said, oh, that's great, Alan. He said, under one condition. You lie to me and we're done. Explain Alan. (laughs) You lie to me, I'm not meeting with you. Because if you lie to me, you're wasting my time. You tell me the truth, I'll go to bat with you every time. Brothers and sisters, don't build your relationships on lies. Husbands, don't lie to your wife. Wives, don't lie to your husband. Build your relationships on truth and love. See, lying will always catch up with you. Pride causes division. And brothers, strive, sisters, strive to help one another live a life of integrity. Have at least one person in your life that you invite to come in through the doors of your heart and ask you those hard questions but really personal and necessary questions. I need it, and you need it too. Notice verse 6. Again, he wants to be surrounded with the right people. He says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. The Bible's replete with scriptures about the right influence and the right friends. I can give you many at another time but I think it's very clear the people you surround yourself with will often affect your future and your spiritual growth. In verse 8, David says something actually fairly strong, but you got to remember he's a king in Israel. He says, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city, of the Lord. Uh, keep in mind, this is under the Mosaic law. This is Israel's Theocracy, God directly ruled over a nation state, and David was God's appointed king. In other words, he was to carry out God's justice and steadfast love over his people. The same love and justice he sang about in verse 1. David was to rule with courage and conviction and integrity, and he was to minister and love and shepherd with the mercy of his God never forget this good judgment is the overflow that springs from good character good judgment is the overflow that springs from good character now some of us have read Psalm 101 like I have obviously and you'll read these things about I will I will I will and the type A among us We'll become super motivated, like a little pep talk. And then some of us will get discouraged and realize, I might as well not even make a commitment because I know I'm just going to break it. Or I know I'm just not going to get around to it. So how do we respond to a Psalm like 101? Well, I think the, the first thing we should do is that we should respond with sadness. You might say, why? If you read 2 Samuel chapters 11 In 12, we have recorded for us the tragic story of a prominent leader who committed horrific sins lying, murder, adultery, rape. That man was King David. He certainly had high marks on his resume. Women wanted him, and men wanted to be like him. But eventually, his secret sins caught up with him. The vows he made to God not to commit, in part, led to his very fall. Friends, no man or woman in any rank of leadership is above committing any sin. The best of men are still men at best. Even men that serve as pastors, even men that God has used throughout generations in this community and around the world are still clay pots. They're frail, they're fragile. The closer you look at anyone you admire, mom or dad, grandpa or grandma, your pastor, Anybody, the more you'll notice, even among the most godly of us, there are still sins and blemishes that Christ is still working out in our lives. But this psalm should also bring us hope. The hope is this, David did not embody what he committed to do, but David's greater son did. The descendant who would come from the throne of David, King Jesus. Jesus ultimately fulfilled what a steadfast love and life of justice would look like. John tells us he was full of grace and truth. Jesus is the faithful one that David hoped to become. A life of integrity in private and in public and Christ and Christ alone not president trump not joe biden or anyone that will ever come behind them in this country will pale in comparison to our glorious king king jesus he is the judge of all the earth he is the king of kings he is the lord of lords and brothers and sisters here's the hope we make our resolve to live life of integrity a life pleasing to him, but we do it not to achieve God's pleasure. We do it in response to God's pleasure. He delights in you, brothers and sisters. Christ's righteousness has been given to us. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, when a leader or someone you look up to doesn't live up to their promises, look to Christ. He will never fail you. And when you fall short, and when I fall short of living out a life of integrity, look to Christ. He will always forgive you. Christ promised that he will present his bride one day blameless and beautiful in his sight. And if your heart lacks motivation, even today, for living this blameless life, guess what? Look to Christ. He is the treasure your heart is yearning for, and he has the very words of life. So respond to who God is with songs of praise. Rely upon God's grace and mercy every day he gives you through prayer. And finally, resolve to honor God through a life of integrity. Does the way people perceive you match what God knows about you? Let's pray. Father, we, we read this psalm. And in some ways we're motivated to live a godly life. And yet we realize that even the most godly are still capable of committing heinous sins. Father, I pray that we would read this psalm as an encouragement to pursue lives of integrity in private and in public, but we would only do so in response to your grace. Father, I pray for anyone in here who is caught in any secret sin, whether it's pornography or some kind of addiction or alcoholism or whatever they are putting before their eyes that is worthless. Father, open up their hearts. Cause them to seek help today so that they and we all could live a life where we are sticking close to Jesus and clean from sin. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would receive glory now as we respond in song. In Jesus' name, amen.